0: This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. The fight for net neutrality is extremely important right now. A few months ago, Bell and several other media conglomerates announced a proposal to create a mandatory blocking system for websites that they have arbitrarily determined are inappropriate. Bell's proposal asks Canada's internet service providers to block websites they deem as piracy. Let's talk about an issue here at home, a federal court delivering a landmark ruling ordering Canadian internet service providers to block a piracy website for the first time. A federal court of Canada judge recently issued a major website blocking decision, granting a request from Bell, Rogers, and Group TVA to block access to a series of gold TV streaming websites. The order covers most of Canada's large ISPs, including Bell, Eastlink, Kogeco, Distributel, Fido, Rogers, SaskTel, TechSavvy, Telus, and Videotron. The case is an important one, representing the first extensive website blocking order in Canada. I've argued that it's also deeply flawed from both a policy and legal perspective substituting the views of one judge over Parliament's judgment and relying on a foreign copyright case that was decided under different legal rules than those found in Canada. Site blocking has been on the policy and regulatory radar screen for several years in Canada, starting with the fair play proposal to the CRTC that was led by Bell, demands for site blocking as part of the copyright review, and now this legal case, which has been appealed by the independent ISP tech savvy. Here to help sort through the issues is Alan Mendelson, a Montreal-based internet lawyer, adjunct professor at McGill University, active blogger at alanmendelson.com, and frequent media commentator on internet law issues. Alan, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Oh,
1: thanks so much for having me, Michael. I'm a big fan of the podcast, and it's great to be uh, on this side of the interview chair, so okay. so such as it is.
0: Okay, well, it's super to have you, and we're going to talk today about site blocking, and in particular, the recent federal court decision involving Gold TV, which has attracted quite a lot of attention. Uh, but I think before we get into the case itself, I, I want to provide a bit of foundation for some of the issues around site blocking, because this has been part of a a broader campaign that's been led largely by by a pair of companies, Bell and Rogers, though some others have participated as well, who have been anxious to see site blocking brought to Canada. So why don't we start there? I think it's it's a bit unusual to find telecommunications companies advocating for site blocking, yet this, as I say, has become a really big issue for some of Canada's biggest telecom companies. Why are they, have they jumped in really with both feet on the issue of site blocking?
1: Right. So, um, you know, the telecom companies are looking to stop copyright infringement. I, you know, I think one of the issues and why it's sort of confusing to some people is that The telecoms, your Bells and Rogers, they play a dual role. They're both content creators or owners and ISPs. So, you know, it's funny, look at the Gold TV decision and you see Bell in two different sets of parties as both plaintiff and third-party respondents, and it's indicative of their dual role. But in their role as copyright owner, owners or you know, content creators, so we'll just assume that they, they're copyright owners, they're trying to stop copyright
0: infringement. Okay, so they're concerned with copyright. I think, I think we'd recognize that. I think it's, in this case, we're, we're specifically really talking about the streaming side of... Uh, yeah,
1: of, of yeah, technology. exactly. But, so, I mean, you know, copyright infringement comes in a multitude of factors, um, you know, I wrote my master's thesis 10 years ago on torrenting, which was the big copyright issue back then. Torrenting seems to have, you know, taken a little sidestep to these streaming services, you know, what are called generally IPTV or internet protocol TV, where sites are essentially just rebroadcasting content uh, that is owned, that is most likely not owned by them.
0: Okay. So we've got websites that... that- provide streaming video content often television channels or other sorts of programming we've got companies like bell and rogers that uh, may create or pay to create some of that content very often i think they're licensing the content from others as opposed to being the original creator but regardless yeah yeah regardless they've got They've got domestic rights in it. Uh, I think it, it, it's worth noting when we're talking about site blocking primarily to to stop streaming services, we're talking about foreign sites. We're not talking about sites in Canada. Uh, a bit about what we do have domestically under the copyright law that allows rights holders, whether Rogers, Bell or others, to target sites that they claim are infringing if they are located in Canada.
1: Sure. Well, there's, I mean, there is a variety of remedies available under the Copyright Act. Uh, You know, right off the bat, and maybe this is a bit of a a spoiler alert or or a tease for our later discussion, um, there is a part in the Copyright Act that says when your copyright is being infringed, you can seek a bunch of remedies, including injunctions. Um, against those infringers. So that's, you know, um, a sort of one of the remedies available. There's other remedies available in a, in a more broader sense. Um, there's something called, you know, call it enabling copyright infringement, which sort of is a form of secondary infringement that was introduced in 2012 as part of the Copyright Modernization Act when uh, Parliament at the time sort of revamped and added a whole bunch of things um, to the Copyright Act. And if a website is being used, I think the phrase is uh, primarily for the purposes of enabling acts of copyright, Um, you know, they, you know, you can get them shut down, and that's considered uh, infringement as well. So there are a number of remedies currently existing, not to mention the notice and notice regime, which was put into effect, again, as part of the Copyright Modernization Act, um, which tends to, you know, uh, have an effect more against individual users as opposed to, you know, large corporate companies who may be infringing, but, you know, still needs to be mentioned.
0: Okay so i mean i think it is it is good to note just before we get into the kinds of remedies that they're looking for and those companies have been looking for in the Gold TV case that in fact Canadian copyright law has regularly been updated to try to target infringing activities and the enabler provision that you mentioned, uh, a provision designed to specifically target websites that are seen to enable infringement so long as they meet the standard that you described shows that if you're Canadian based there are tools in place and then there are some additional tools such as no and notice to design to deal with concerns associated with infringement online. So, suggestions that somehow Canada is a no-law land when it comes to some <laughs> of these issues simply isn't the case. There are quite a lot of rules, specifically when you're talking about domestic-based activity. But in this context where the focus tends to be on foreign-based sites, and as we've noted, these companies have landed on site blocking as their preferred approach. I'd like to get to the federal court case, but again, before we do that, this really comes as sort of almost the door three uh, as they keep <laughs> looking for different mechanisms to incorporate site blocking into the Canadian ecosystem.
1: Third time's the charm, Michael.
0: It was in this case. We'll see what the Federal (laughs) Court of Appeal has to say, as we'll talk about soon enough. But why don't we talk about door one and door two? So door one, I guess, would be the effort to convince the CRTC, the Canadian Radio, Television and Telecommunications Commission, which regulates broadcast and telecommunications about a year or so ago to establish a site blocking system that was as part of the initiative known as the fair play initiative can you tell tell us a bit about what that involved and then ultimately what the crtc decided
1: sure so uh back in january of 2018 um you know a group of i think at least 25 and it was a Uh, companies got together and it was a pretty diverse group it was it was the media companies the bells and watches that we're talking about but also creative companies as well Um, even the CBC was was part of it and they they came together in a group called fair play Canada Uh, people call it the fair play coalition Um, and they petitioned the CRTC they wanted to set up an independent body that would be called the internet piracy review agency uh, the IPRA. And the IPRA would recommend uh, that certain sites should be blocked, uh, websites that were, I think the, the phrase was, blatantly uh, or structurally engaged in piracy. And, you know, this, they made this significant submission to the CRTC. Uh, and the CRTC thought about it. And in October of that same year, 2018, they rejected that plan. Uh, They essentially rejected it on jurisdictional grounds uh, for a variety of reasons, but specifically that while the CRTC may have had uh, some jurisdiction to block certain website content based upon a section of the Telecommunications Act, The problem was here, this was copyright, and they really didn't have jurisdiction to have something done under the Copyright Act. Not to mention that they felt that the Copyright Act had a bunch of remedies in it already that we were just discussing earlier, and that those remedies were pretty much exhaustive, and they couldn't really add a remedy to it. So basically, the CRTC said, look, we, don't have, we believe we do not have the, the power to block it. And as a result, you know, they, we just don't have the power. We don't have the jurisdiction. That's it. Um, they didn't even get to the actual substance of whether it was a good idea or not, because they believed they did not have the, the jurisdiction
0: okay so and listeners may recall this was a pretty high profile uh policy debate with uh, many many people uh, pr- providing submissions from wide range of individual yeah. Canadians. As you mentioned, many creator groups participated, technical and internet-related groups uh, participated in this process. Really, for people who are interested in some of the issues arising out of site blocking, taking a look at the range of submissions that the CRTC received is probably the, the largest trove of analysis around <laughs> some of these issues. Uh, but ultimately, the CRTC, without really, as you say, Going getting into the substance of the copyright issues of the blocking issues he says, listen, we're we're governed by our legislative frameworks. This is outside of what our mandate looks like right now. The state door number two after the after that decision in the fall of 2018 uh, is the copyright review, which provided another opportunity for the, many of the same groups, this time to convince members of parliament that the Copyright Act ought to be amended to specifically address the issue of site blocking. And as, as you know, and, and many others will know, the industry committee led the copyright review, we talked about it on an earlier podcast with Karis Craig, and sort of provided a, a, a very broad analysis of just about every main copyright issue you'd want to take a look at, including site blocking. And what did the committee have to say about the prospect of reform today or right now when it comes to site blocking and the Copyright Act?
1: First, maybe for those who didn't listen to your earlier podcast, you know, they should know that um, the Copyright Act and the Copyright Modernization Act that I mentioned earlier in particular specifies that Parliament is supposed to review it every five years. So this was sort of part of the standard review process of the Copyright Act. Um, and you know, it's it, another sort of introductory note. It's interesting to note that if you read the CRTC's decision of, uh, with, in response to the Fair Play submission, they noted that the Copyright Act review is underway, and it was at the time, um, and that maybe that would be the better place, you know, to to address these issues. Anyway, um, the so the industry committee. Re- issued its report in June, I believe, of 2019, and it essentially rejected site blocking. Um, You know, it it had some interesting comments that in some ways are sort of a preview of what happens in Gold TV. Um, They they said that it might be the courts are in a better place to judge whether any sort of site blocking or other remedies as well, Um, related to copyright infringement you know again you'll excuse my my side note bell and rogers they actually submitted um, to the industry committee a much broader proposal than just site blocking they wanted to allow courts to issue a bunch of other orders Um, you know web hosts taking down sites delisting via search engines uh, forcing payment processors to stop processing payments, you know, a bunch of other things, interestingly enough, besides just having site blocking, they wanted a sort of a massive scheme. Um, but, you know, just with respect to the site blocking, the, you know, the, the industry committee said, well, look, you know, we don't think an administrative regime is the way to go about it. Um, you know, there may be piracy happening, but there, we don't think it's the proper place to do it, with, and especially without certain procedural checks and balances. Um, you know, and there's also the issue of net neutrality, which you know, will come up again and again, I'm sure, in the rest of our discussion. Um, but the industry committee said, look, this is, this is not a good idea, um, and we're not going to recommend any sort of site blocking.
0: Okay. So we've got... First attempts at the regulator, which fail, then attempts within parliament that fail. But third time, as you say, is a charm uh, as the same companies now go to court against this specific site called Gold TV uh, and they get their site blocking order. Maybe you can walk us through a little bit the process that leads to the decision and then we can talk specifically about what the court decided.
1: Sure. So, you know, I I Again, as an introductory note, yeah, you, you have to kind of assume that perhaps um, Bell and Rogers, and also TVA Group, was was involved. Are the plaintiffs in the in the Bell in the Gold TV case? Um, you know, perhaps using it as sort of a, a test case. Let's see if we can get going with this. Because I mean, there's certainly enough other possibly copyright infringing sites out there they could have gone after. But anyway, so you know, normally. Um, if you're suing somebody for copyright infringement, you know, you're suing them for damages. But the first thing you would do is to get a preliminary injunction in order to have whatever infringing materials either removed or whatever the circumstances may be. And therefore, if it was in the case of a website, in normal circumstances, you would say, well, as a first step, in your lawsuit, we need to get this website removed immediately because we are continuing to be harmed by it. And while the lawsuit is playing out, no one should have access to that website. The problem in this case, as mentioned previously, the owners are foreign and more than that, we don't even know who they are. They're listed as John Doe's in the case and the Bell and Rogers can't find them. Nobody can find them. So how are you going to issue an order Against the websites themselves to remove the content or to shut down the website, you can't. So as a result, Bell and Rogers says to the court, "Look, we don't know who they are, can't shut them down. The only way to stop access to these websites is to have them blocked at the ISP level. So will you issue that order uh, asking the federal court, "Would you please issue that order, Issue a preliminary injunction to have the ISPs block? Canadians access to those websites and they did
0: the order that they were seeking was not an order trying to stop the site itself which I suppose in theory and just in theory and practice as well they they could have sought a court order saying that you're engaging in copyright infringement and then sought to try to serve that order on the site itself and tried to shut it down perhaps tried to shut down whoever was hosting the site uh, and the like which would be the way certainly if you were domestic based that you might go about doing it uh, but in this case they say that's just too difficult we don't really know who they are it's not clear that they make a whole lot of effort to try to to get to take that path to instead them they them, simply yeah. instead they simply say hey we don't know who these. We don't know who this. Who's behind this site? Too difficult to try to to stop it. And so, what we want is a court order that then we can take to internet providers and require them to implement within their system blocking of this site.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's the case. Uh, you know, any internet service provider has the ability to block any particular uh, URL um, with not too much difficulty i mean there may be some costs associated with it and some other things um, but generally you are at the you as an internet user are subject to the will and the uh you know of your internet service provider they are the ones you know sending you on your way to those websites so to, to use a colloquialism as a result they certainly have the ability to block it and the most effective, easiest way to block Can- to not have Canadians access this allegedly, you know, uh, infringing content uh, in the eyes of Bell and Rogers was to just have those ISPs block it. Yeah.
0: Okay. For for someone who who followed, let's say door one and door number two, <laughs> the the decision probably comes a bit of a surprise because the companies had gone first to the CRTC saying, we need a system to allow us to block. Then they go to the the parliament and say, we need a system to block. And now we've got a court saying, well, you didn't really need a system. (laughs) We've already got a system. So is there something specifically on site blocking in the Copyright Act, or is the court reading in as part of some of its broad remedies, the ability to issue this kind of order? I
1: would, I would certainly um, say it's the latter. There is absolutely nothing in the Copyright Act that provides for specifically site blocking. Now, the court's decision is entirely based upon the laws of injunction, specifically the laws of preliminary injunctions uh, in this case. And if you read the Copyright Act very specifically in Section 34, it does say that you know, where copyright has been infringed, The owner of the copyright is entitled to all remedies, including injunctions. So the court sort of takes that and runs with it and says, look, the Copyright Act says that we are allowed to issue injunctions. We have been asked to issue an injunction. We are just going to use the law of injunction to determine whether this injunction should be granted. Without necessarily, I mean, it recognizes, obviously, but without distinguishing that this particular injunction being asked for is quite uh, a remedy. I mean, it is an extraordinary remedy, um, but the court just goes about its business analyzing the injunction law and grants the order as a result.
0: Okay, so given that there there is nothing specific in the Copyright Act speaking to the issue of site blocking, how do how does the court or where does the court find, sort of in a sense, the analytical framework to reach a decision for what a, what site blocking ought to look like?
1: Right. Well, that's a good question. I <laughs> what does site blocking ought to look like. Is frankly, was drafted by like the actual order itself. When you ask for an injunction that's very specific um, and you go to court and you say you'd like this order issued, you submit a draft order to the court. And that was done here by the plaintiffs um, and they submitted a draft order. Now it was changed a little bit in the final order, but for the most part, it was essentially drafted. The actual order itself was drafted by the plaintiffs. So the court goes through the injunction law and then it gets to the point there's sort of three step there's a three-part test to injunction law. The first two court you know pretty much brushes off and in, in the court's defense they are pretty easily met. The third part of the law injunction is that the balance of convenience should favor the plaintiff and this is a much more complicated one and the court spends a good I don't know, 50 or 60 paragraphs going through whether that is true or not. And in going through whether that is true or not, the court relies very heavily on a decision, not very heavily, almost entirely on a decision from the United Kingdom about site blocking. And they I, I mean, I, well, I'll get into it. So Let's talk about them using the United Kingdom decision. So, okay, so just, so just, yeah, let's, to, just to yeah. make
0: sure that people following along, with they use Canadian law when it comes to determining whether or not to issue an injunction. But as part of that analysis, Correct. they've they've got to find some piece to sort of or some framework to to provide an assessment. There's nothing in Canadian law, so they now look to a UK-based decision instead.
1: Ex- exactly. Now, you know, just to point out that. It is not unusual for a Canadian court to look to decisions, jurisprudence of foreign courts, especially the United States, the United Kingdom, and Australia, who all generally have the same common law principles as Canada does, uh, with the exception of Quebec. But we'll just leave that aside for now. So it is not unusual for a court to look at at a foreign decision. Let's make that point clear. However, you tend to look at foreign decisions where the basic law behind the foreign decision is identical or as close to identical as possible. In this particular case, the Federal Court of Canada turned to a United Kingdom decision about site blocking. It is about site blocking. The problem, the problem here, and the significant problem is that in the United Kingdom, there is a law on the books that allows specifically for site blocking. So, the Canadian federal court has used, has based, you know, most of its decision, while, albeit within the Canadian law injunction context, has based the most important part of the Canadian injunction law decision on a UK case that is based upon the fact that there is site blocking in a law in a specific law in the United Kingdom that we don't have here and that is problematic in my opinion at least
0: problematic in this case right. because in your in your view you're importing a set of rules that are based on a statutory framework that simply doesn't exist it does not, not exist here
1: exactly now you can couch it and you know you can couch it in the fact that you're just using it to interpret the Canadian law, as the judge does, I, I, I wrote down you know, a quote where he just throws it off. The factors considered in the UK context, albeit flowing from statute, will be of assistance in determining whether the relief sought in this case should be issued. So you know, he does at least recognize that there's a difference, but then just glosses over it and says, well, I'm going to use it anyway. And it was determinative. Using those factors was determinative in making sure that that third step of the injunction, uh, three-step test, was passed, um, which is, it, you know, you're you're taking a little bit of judicial liberties there, in my opinion.
0: Okay. And I assume that we'll talk about the appeal in a moment, but uh, <laughs> I, w- I would imagine that yeah. that's, that's one of the issues that's going to be raised at the appeal. The as part of the case, we, we haven't noted it, but there was one ISP, Tech Savvy, that, that opposed the order and, and raised evidence and cons- and legal arguments against issuing this particular order. They raised a number of, of concerns, um, and I thought maybe we should just quickly run through some of those. Uh, wh- one, of course, and we talked, we highlighted a moment ago, was the issue of net neutrality, uh, which is often raised where at ISP, essentially inserts itself or is inserted in between the content someone is seeking to access and the user and may limit their ability to access that content in, in a number of different ways what did the court have to say about neutrality concerns
1: well they they pretty much brushed over it to be honest with you now they they acknowledged it uh you know in the decision it they do get it does the judge does ju- excuse me does discuss net neutrality says that the plaintiffs don't even worry about it and they had their own reasoning behind it at least he recognized at least the judge recognizes that net neutrality you know is a concern um but again just glosses over it and in the sense that you know he believes there's a strong prima facie case of infringement that is ongoing and you know, you can't really worry about net neutrality when you are trying to stop something illegal. And that's it. And he just says, okay, that's it. It's nothing else I'm going to say about it. Um, and pretty much brushes it aside. So he recognizes it as an issue, but doesn't do any sort of in-depth analysis whatsoever um, okay. on that particular issue.
0: Okay, so Rogers, Rogers Bell argue, no issue here. <laughs> The court says, yeah. well, there might be an issue, but as between the balance between that issue and the copyright issue, we're going to side with the copyright issue. Yeah, pretty uh, much. Uh, does the judge say the same kind of thing when it comes to some of the freedom of expression concerns or some of the issues around whether or not site blocking is is even effective and others may be able to circumvent? Some of the kinds of arguments yeah. people have raised in the context of site blocking and why they have, why they have concerns.
1: Well, well, again, you know, sort of, he dis- he discusses them, but they-, they are minimized. So, with respect to you know freedom of expression, um, it does cite the Supreme Court of Canada in Equistec, um, which I'm sure your listeners will know. Um, but just quickly, it's where the Supreme Court of Canada ordered that Google should delist um, uh, certain websites that were selling selling infringing products. And the court in Equistec discussed freedom of expression in the context of delisting, but you can make a parallel between delisting and site blocking, and that freedom in Equistec, freedom of expression did not really allow for unlawful conduct. You can't you know if you, if something is unlawful, you can't say freedom of expression should should overturn that unlawfulness. So the judge sort of the judge in this case in Cool TV, um, sort of cites that equistec. He actually uses a quote from equistec uh, and says, Well, that's enough for freedom of expression for me. The supreme court says it shouldn't facilitate unlawful activity. Okay, I agree with that. So that's again sort of tossed aside quite quickly, um, the way net neutrality was. Okay,
0: so so the the arguments are at least raised, but ultimately, you've got the judge saying well i I've, I've got to balance out these different considerations and i'm going to side with the companies who are seeking the court order uh and and goes ahead and issues that order yeah uh
1: and, you know and and like he, he literally just says you know he doesn't really you know balance is a good a good word to use michael because he he actually mentions the word balance but doesn't even do any analysis of that balance he just says that you know Neither net neutrality or freedom of expression tips the balance against granting this relief, point final. So, you know, uh, I think that's that'll be brought up certainly on appeal.
0: Okay. So what do we do? Just... Sort of talk about what comes next. There was some question whether or not there even would be a would be an appeal. In part because uh, when you take a look at who's involved in this case, you've got on the one hand the companies themselves that obviously want the order and have invested very heavily, whether that's in the regulatory processes, in lobbying, or now in court cases to try to get it. You've got internet users who aren't involved in this at all, who are ultimately affected. You've got websites that are affected but are unlikely to show up. And then you've also ultimately got Internet providers, the vast majority of which in Canada either are effectively conflicted because they also own content rights or because at the end of the day, they're just not willing to necessarily go to bat for access for their customers. There's a real cost right. in doing so. It's just a lot easier to, to remain on the sidelines.
1: Right, exactly. And, that, and that's sort of problematic. I mean, if you look at the third party respondent ISP list, uh, in this case, uh, I think there's eight or nine of them, maybe 10. Um, and seven, six or seven of them are also content creators, you know, they're not going to say anything. A couple of them made a, uh, a certain motion, not motions, but certain submissions with respect to some of the content of the order, but nothing major. And as you mentioned earlier, the only one who really stepped up to the plate was Mm TechSavvy. And TechSavvy was the one who really argued against this site-blocking decision for a number of reasons. And TechSavvy, just over a week ago now, um, announced and submitted an appeal to the Federal Court of Appeal.
0: Okay, so just from a procedural perspective that aren't familiar with this, that that effectively now means this case is going to a higher level court. There is the prospect of, I, I imagine, interveners who may provide additional evidence or arguments that perhaps the trial judge did in part because so many parties just don't have an opportunity to get involved in these kinds of cases. And I suppose it's possible that the kinds of issues that you've been highlighting about the lack of analysis on some pretty core issues or the, the reliance on a foreign decision that is itself based on a, on a different legal framework will at least get their day in court. And perhaps a federal court may at, at least provide a deeper analysis than we got at this trial level decision.
1: Oh, absolutely. There's, there's no question. I mean, if you read uh, the submission, the initial submission from TechSavvy to the Federal Court of Appeal, it's very straightforward. It's, anyone can read it. It's not particularly long. It's only about four paragraphs. And it does highlight the things that we have been discussing throughout this podcast, specifically that the judge erred in applying the, the, uh, the law from the UK, that that shouldn't have been done. Uh, that the judge erred in finding that the Copyright Act uh, allowed for any sort of site-blocking orders. There's a whole bit, there's a complicated issue with respect to something called Section 36 of the Telecommunications Act, which does allow for the CR, as I mentioned earlier, it does allow for the CRTC to block in certain cases. And so, you know, tech savvy sort of saying, well, look, it should be, if anyone should be blocking here, it's the CRTC, no one else should have the authority to do that. And certainly courts should not have the jurisdiction to make this order blocking, not to mention freedom of expression and net neutrality are, you know, so these are all are, you know, are severely curtailed and the balance, especially with with respect to freedom of expression, uh, should not you know, should override the site blocking. Uh, And these are the, you know, sort of basic arguments that will be brought up by Tech Savvy
0: on appeal. We haven't heard the last of site blocking and not the last of Gold TV either with all the various issues that you've identified (laughs) very much up for review when it comes to the Court of Appeal. Hopefully you'll you'll think about coming back on the podcast when we get that decision. We can dig into how the court uh, dealt with these issues when it had another opportunity or an opportunity to take a look. Alan, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure, Michael.
0: That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS, at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.